for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. say a couple of things first of all for Christians uh, the nations are not an option for the few or for the elite Uh, they remain at the center of the purpose for which God has created and redeemed us he creates us for glory sin substitutes that glory of our created purpose with created things gives us a false idol but God redeems us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ So that he might reclaim that created purpose for our life. And that he might empower us as glory bearers, as glory servers, and as glory sharers. His glory in our life. One of my favorite verses has always been Habakkuk 2.14. When you think about the nations. And it simply says this. For the earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful image, what a beautiful vision of what God wants to do through His people. And I start that way because I want to provide a glimpse of context for where we are headed in our next series. The series name is is called Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And uh, as I begin this series, we're going to talk about how we live missionally. How is it that we... um, can be the people of God and do the will of God in this world. And so it might lead you to ask, well, what book of the Bible are we going to study? Are we going to talk about one of the Gospels? Are we going to look at the book of Acts? Are we going to uh, consider one of Paul's letters or maybe one of Peter's letters to uh, the persecuted Christians? And so I would invite you today to take your Bible and turn to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, what I would argue is... Uh, The most missional book of the Bible. Now, let me just qualify that phrase by simply saying this. My favorite book of the Bible is the one that's in front of me right now that I happen to be reading. Um, And so, um, but but Deuteronomy does hold a special place for me. I've always had an affection for the Old Testament and understanding God's plan and purpose pointing towards Christ. And my heart for us as a church is as we study this book in Deuteronomy to consider not just what God wants us to do, but what God's been doing since all eternity past. Yet God is and has been and forevermore will be faithful to His character and to His nature. And that's what we see. And so the riches and the strength and wisdom of the book of Deuteronomy is good for us. And I'm excited about this. Let me give just a little bit of historical setting For those of you who may not know, um, for those who uh, maybe have forgotten, and for the rest of you. So that would be for all of us. Um, let Let me just go back, because Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament. It is the completing book of the Pentateuch. And uh, it provides for us a very unique place in the story of God. In the book of Genesis, we know that it records the beginning of all things, the creation of God. And it tells us in chapter 12 that God chose a man, Abram, and called him out to follow him. And Abram followed God by faith. 
And so he had this phenomenal experience. Now, Abram was old when God called him. It wasn't just a young buck, you know. He was old. And so uh, God called Abram and his wife Sarai at the time. And he chose a man and he promised, he made this promise to him. Verses 1 through 3, he said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Irony of ironies. This man was 90 years old and his wife was as well. And so he made this promise to him and literally it was so out of left field and inconceivable that when God told Sarah she was pregnant, Sarah laughed at God, right? You remember this part of the story? But God said, I'm not going to just give you a child. I'm going to make a nation out of you that will be more numerous than the stars. And so he elected this man to bear his glory. Events transpire, uh, his grandson, um, Jacob, um, his sons, if you remember the story of Jacob, also called Israel. His youngest son, Joseph, is sold into slavery because his brothers can't stand him. He's sent down to Egypt. He gets raised up to the highest level in the land, second only to Pharaoh. And a drought strickens the, the land where uh, Jacob and them are living. And, of course, they haven't seen Joseph in all these years. And so they have to go to Egypt because God has blessed Joseph and prepared him and made him have food for all the world in that region. And so Jacob and his family, uh, he, Jacob actually sends his sons. They make a couple of trips. Finally, they take their whole family. And they realize that Joseph is there, right? And Joseph is used of God to save his family in a powerful way. And so we see this beautiful way that God is carrying out his will in the book of Genesis. But another Pharaoh arises. It tells us that Jacob and his family lived there. They flourished there. They had the best of Egyptian life while they were in Egypt. But it tells us that another Pharaoh came to power that didn't know Joseph or the promise that had been made. Probably just didn't care, right? And all of these people that had become so numerous, he saw them of economic value. And so he enslaved them and forced them to slave labor. So we see that the Israelites were forced into slave labor. And that's how we see the end of Genesis chapter 50 and, and, and between Genesis and the book of Exodus. When we pick up in the second book of the Old Testament, the book called Exodus, we see the greatest event of salvation in the Old Testament. It is the marker by which God comes and saves his people. He raises up Moses, who was Hebrew, but was floated down the river. If you remember the story, Pharaoh's daughter found him in the basket, raised him uh, miraculously. His own mother nursed him because um, she needed a Hebrew woman to do that. And so his own mother got to raise him. I mean, man, do you just hear the grace of God in all of this? You, you just need to open your eyes if you want to see God's hand, right? And so he raises up Moses. Some bad things happened because Moses was human. Moses goes and works for his father-in-law for 40 years. Um, and then God, on a mountainside, has the burning bush. Remember this story? Exodus 3 and 4 says, go save my people. And the place that Moses had run from, God sent him right back into to lead these people out. So the, the book of Exodus is about God's salvation for his people in the Old Testament. We come to the book of Leviticus, and I know, I know, you've read it a thousand times. You don't need me to recap it for you, but just in case you missed a detail or two here or there, let me just simply say this. Leviticus organizes and directs the Levite tribes, the Levite priests, in correct worship. 
And, and their goal, their, their assignment was to lead the Hebrew people in correct worship of God. And so the book of Leviticus is all about how do you worship God in a way that honors Him rightly. And then you have the book of Numbers. And did, did, again, I'm sure it's one you've read a thousand times and, and you remember all of it. But Numbers is very unique. And I'll give you one clue as to the purpose of Numbers. The clue is, look at the name, right? Numbers is the accounting of the Hebrew people. And so if you want to know why the book of Numbers is so important, let me just tell you this. God took one man who was aged in his years. I think it's arguably correct to say the age of 89 or 90 for us is, it's, you know, you can technically say you're kind of old, right? You're at least beyond childbearing years, right? I mean, I'm in my mid-40s and I'm done. <laughs> I'm not done with my kids. I just don't want to start over, you know. Um, so at twice my age, um, I don't want to start over either. But that's what God told Abram he would do. And he would make a nation more numerous than the stars. And you know what they say, numbers don't lie, right? So what is the book of Numbers about? The book of Numbers is about counting every person. And God going, I told you, more numerous than the stars. Each one. Why? Because each person mattered to God. So he wrote a book. That was basically written by a CPA, right? And he said, every one of them mattered. And every one of them, every name says this, I told you so. I made a promise, and I never go back on my promises. What a beautiful picture. So when we come to the book of Deuteronomy, that's kind of the context that we come to. It's the fifth book. It completes the Pentateuch. And really, the Pentateuch was known as the Bible of the Old Testament. For many people in the Old Testament, this is all the Bible that they had. So when the Israelites were called out of Egypt and Moses led them out, they crossed the Red Sea, they got to the threshold of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. And at that point they said, hey, before we just dive in, why don't we send some people in and just to tell us how great it is, right? You can already feel your own wheels churning because this is familiar to you in the way that you rationalize with God, right? And so 12 spies go in, 12 spies come back. It takes all of them to carry the grapevines that they bring. It is so ridiculously rich in produce and just the sweetest milk you've ever drunk, the greatest fruit you've ever put on your lips, that the honey that is just unimaginable. And ten of them go, oh yeah, I'm, it was great in there, except for the people are huge. They look like giants. They made us look like grasshoppers, right? And they're, whoa, 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 what'd you say? Made us look like grasshoppers. What do you mean they're big? And the Bible tells us that they began to murmur. And they began to conjure up in their own mind what might happen if they crossed over into the land. And two of them said, no, 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 we got this, we got this. God said, go, let's go. Ten of them said, no, 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 they were big. Don't get me wrong, they were huge. And they made us look like grasshoppers. And the people said, we're not going. And so for 40 plus years, they wandered around in circles in the desert. Why? Because God said, if you won't go, I will keep you in the desert until this generation passes. And the next generation will go in and take my promise. My promise will be good. You just won't get to see it. And so that's where Deuteronomy picks up. 
They've wandered around in the desert for 40 plus years. That generation has passed. They stand again at the threshold of entering into God's full promise of the land that he wants to give them. Let's read the first eight verses together and take a look at this to kind of get a setting. And then I'm going to talk more about the book than I speak from it. And you'll understand what I'm going to say in just a moment. He says this, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Idri. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, Now hear me, this is telling us where they are, what they're doing, and what Moses is attempting to do throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 6. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Friends, this is significant because this isn't like 50 or 60 people got up and left. This is like a city the size of greater St. Louis all rose, broke camp, and began to move. I mean, this is, you know, like the earth kind of did that when they began to move. And the record in Deuteronomy tells us what Moses taught them before they were to cross over into the land. And so Deuteronomy is significant in its uh, influence and in its positioning in the scriptures. God made the Hebrew people into a great nation for a purpose. God powerfully delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt for a purpose. God gave this land to the Israelites as a possession for a purpose. God does all things for the purpose of the glory of His name. And Deuteronomy stands at the center of God's purposes for His people. And I'm going to argue this throughout this, that Deuteronomy not only stands at the center of God's purpose for His people, for those people, but for us, His people today. And we're going to look at how this book points us to Christ, but also introduces us to God in every way. And so I just want to share with you a couple of statements that some scholars have made about the importance of Deuteronomy. Listen to this. Deuteronomy stands as the headwaters of biblical theology, of life, and of practice. The headwaters. Do you know what that means? Have you ever been up into the area? I believe it's in Minnesota where the Mississippi River starts. I had a friend who went to find the place that the Mississippi River starts. And he stood with either foot on either side of the Mississippi River. Now when you and I think of the Mississippi River, we don't do the splits that well. Right? Why? 
Because it is a raging torrent. It's dangerous to be in if you're not in a boat sizable enough to navigate it. Because it is a massive river with unbelievable power and current. But there he stood. Where was he? He was at the headwaters. And what the scholars are saying is that Deuteronomy is like that. It sources a raging power that flows in biblical theology, in our understanding of God, who He is and what He's done and what His purpose is for our life, but also in our own life and our practice of following God. Deuteronomy creates for us a source that swells into a powerful movement of God in us, through us, into the world. Deuteronomy is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. 437 times it's quoted, it's cited, and it's referenced in the New Testament. So people were depending upon the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. And it also remains for us today an invaluable resource uh, for our biblical understanding, really in three ways. First of all, it gives us a biblical understanding of God and His grace. Of God and His grace in redeeming those that are bound in sin. It also gives us an appropriate response to God, entailing our love for God and love for our fellow human beings. And we'll see that in a moment. But it also reminds us of the sure destiny of the redeemed, the destiny of those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so here's what I want to do today in the the remainder of our time, of which we don't have much, and I have a lot of notes. So I'm going to try to go very speedily through this. But hear this. The Lord calls a people to live in the world to demonstrate His truth and love that all nations might worship Him. The Lord calls a people to live in the world to demonstrate His truth and love that all nations might worship Him. The nations matter for every Christian. For every Christian. And Deuteronomy is going to do this by teaching us three simple but seismic lessons. Simple but seismic lessons. Let me say why I say this. Because simple, just in the way we state them, but seismic in their impact upon us as we study the Word and see what God is doing. Here's what I'm praying for us as a church. That God, in what He does spiritually within us, in forging us into His image through this study, would lead us to carve out a new reality of how we live in complete obedience to Him for His glory to all nations in the world. That's my prayer. And so let's dive in. I want to give you these three lessons, and I'm going to move through them very quickly. The first lesson is this. It's very simple. There is no war in the Scriptures between the law and the gospel. There is no war in the Scriptures between the law either the Ten Commandments itself or the whole of the Old Testament, however you use that word. There is no war between law and gospel. The law is often set as opposed to the gospel. Christians go, well, you know, we're Christians. We don't have to worry about the Old Testament anymore. We don't have to worry about the law of God. And so some act as though one must choose law or grace. And because they're incompatible, they say. Which should I choose, law or grace? Hmm, this is a really difficult decision for me to make. Should I choose the law 
You know what it would look like if we chose to live under the law as we talk about it in those terms? Imagine this, you're driving down 65 and about a half mile ahead you see a highway patrolman's car and so you just floor it and you speed down right next to him and you just turn in real hard right in front of him so he has to turn off to the side of the road and both of you almost have a wreck but you get stopped right on the shoulder, you get out of your car, it's still running, you almost didn't put it in park, you run back to his car and you say to him, give me a ticket right now, give me a ticket. And he goes, well, I'm going to for the way you just pulled me over, but why should I give you a ticket? Because I'm a horrible person. I speed all the time and don't tell anybody. I drive like a maniac. I honk at people, cut them off. Give me a ticket. Just give me a ticket for the way I drive. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I choose to live under the law, and I've broken it. Give me a ticket, right? Who's going to choose that? What an idiot, right? Because what do you do? You look in your rear view and the highway patrolman's behind you. You get pulled over and immediately your mind goes to what? Why can I get out? How can I get out of this ticket? That light was not red. It was clearly yellow. It was a strong hue of yellowish orange, but it was not completely red yet. Man, I don't think I was going quite that fast. I mean, when I looked down at my speedometer, it was clearly falling below 85. Well, that's because you were standing on the brake pedal. You know, that's what happened when you saw the light. I mean, immediately, what do we do? We began to rationalize and argue why we should have grace in all situations. And I'm going to even say this, not even grace. Because what we want is, let's just don't bring it up, right? Who's going to choose law over grace if they're irreconcilable? But the point of Deuteronomy is this. They're not irreconcilable. They're not irreconcilable. We're going to learn there's no war between law and grace. Deuteronomy demonstrates how the law is essential for us to understand God, to understand His grace, to understand the gospel. You see, people argue, man, God just wants to control my life with all of His rules. And here's my reply to that. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. What else do you think the New Testament means when it uses the title Lord? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? Do do you think that's just like a Mr. or Mrs. that we would throw around in our day and time today? You know? No. Lord assumes complete control, does it not? That's what the scripture is saying to us. You see, God's complete control over your life is the only means of true glory being realized in your life. And only true glory that comes from God brings the satisfaction and the joy and the love and the peace that we all so desperately desire. You see, we need God's law because we can't trust our own heart. That's what Jeremiah 17 tells us. It tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Wicked. You are a wicked person. That's what the Bible says. I I don't take it personally against me. Who, it says, who can understand it? And you go, how does that work? Here's how it works. You commit the same sin that you've been struggling with for a considerable season of time. And yet, what do you do? 
you rationalize in your own mind. Even though you know the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation that it brings, what do you do? You rationalize for yourself. You ain't so bad. Come on, you messed up. Okay, we all mess up, right? I mean, look at so-and-so, and here's what you start doing. You find one person above you spiritually and one person below you, and you go, I'm pretty good because you got it all balanced between almost Jesus and almost this person, right? And you go, I'm not so bad. And you just begin to rest, and you convince yourself. You go, hey, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you hadn't done it since last time. Okay, that was only 10 seconds ago, but uh, still, you haven't, you know. And, and it probably won't be again until the next time. And so you start to this wicked rationalization. You see, we don't want to follow God's law because we don't trust that God's glorious and good. We don't trust that he's worthy. We don't trust that he's powerful and gracious. But we do trust this, that in all these things we are. And the irony of ironies, even when we know we're not, we trust ourselves over trusting God. See, we don't like the law because we want to be Lord. But friends, let me tell you something. Without God's law, the gospel is meaningless. Without God's law, grace is nothing more than a sadistic massacre of divine proportions. That's all grace is when disconnected from the law. Let me ask you this. What if God's law were perfect pleasure? What if when you heard God's law, you thought of unending joy, abundant goodness, complete peace, generous love, and perfect truth? And I say to you, that's what God's law is all about. God's law is perfect in every way and so much more for those who love Him. How is it that we know God's law is not just about rigid rules? How do we know it's not just about rituals or religion? There's only one way and I would propose this because if the rule is what is to be worshipped then when Moses came off the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments stones and they were uh, uh, worshiping the golden calf, what did Moses do? He threw the stones with the written law of God on them, and he fell down before God, and he began to pray and intercede for the people. But listen, if the rule is the greatest glory, then its written form is actually worthy of worship. Listen to me. Look at all of the religions in the world. They worship their text. They worship that because they believe that it is the rule that saves them and the observance of the rules. Christians do not worship the Bible. We hold to it because through the Bible, we see a God revealed who is worthy of our worship. We see a worship that reveals God for who he is, that gives him the worth that he is due. We don't worship the Bible but through the Bible we worship a God who is worthy and God didn't kill Moses for throwing the tablets down he did what? he listened to him because he was interceding for the people we'll come back to that in a moment but here's the first thing I want you to understand from this first lesson Deuteronomy teaches us how to live so God's glory becomes a daily reality where we see the law and the gospel together and we see the very nature and character of God revealed in our life in our mind, in our heart, in our will and in the totality of who we are 
the second lesson is this. The second lesson I want you to understand is this, that religion is not the same as relationship. Now, these are some buzzwords in our world today. And so that's why I say it's a pretty simple lesson. You've probably heard this before. But religion, I say to you, we will learn in Deuteronomy, is not the same as relationship. When God led Moses up the mountain to give him the ten words, literally the ten commandments means in Hebrew the ten words is the literal word written. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, that God wrote him with his finger on the stone. I'm captivated by that phrase. Moses spoke with God, and then he watched God write with his own finger the words that he gave to him. God spoke these words to the people, but he also recorded these words. And that's what it tells us. It tells us that the people heard God, but then Moses went up to meet with God to watch him write them out and script them. And, and these words, what did they do? These words were given, and God tells us that he might establish his covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is an understanding of relationship. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And, and it helps us understand what it means to live in relationship. But at the same time that God was scripting, writing with his finger in the stone, the scripture records what were the Israelites doing? They were gathering up all their watches and their rings and their necklaces and their earrings and personal belongings. They were melting them down and they were forming them into a giant golden calf that they might create something that they could bow down to and worship. Now, remember, God is with Moses and he's already spoken these words to the people, but now he's writing them on the stone and he's saying, Moses, teach these to the people that they might be able to worship me. And the people are over here going, what's taking so long? Let's make something ourselves that we can worship. Let's melt all the gold down. Let's make it into a big cow because everybody wants to bow down to a cow, right? And let's worship and bow down to that cow. Let me ask you something. Where is God's grace in this? Seems to me pretty obvious. That God is laboring to teach them what real worship is all about. Because they can't keep focused on anything for more than a second. They've already, they've already forsaken him by creating something in their own image that they could worship. That God didn't wipe them out. Tells us that his grace was with them. Here's what Moses says when he came back down from the second time with the second tablets. He's teaching the people why God didn't destroy them, yet why God continued to labor for them. And he says, when I was praying, the Lord said he was unwilling to destroy you. Unwilling to destroy you. Seems to me that's the grace of God. With people whose hearts are so wicked, so wicked that we don't even know them ourselves, right? And that we're constantly shifting them and turning them. Moses said, God, would you, would you not destroy them, but help us? And Moses says, God was unwilling to destroy you. See, friends, the people were living in grace when God wrote the law, but they didn't know it. Let me give you a little understanding about how the law and the gospel relate to one another and work together. The law always precedes grace 
or grace has no meaning. If there is no law, you have no need for grace. Marriage is the highest relationship in this world, right? But is it without its rules? <laughs> I don't think so. Men, amen? Let's, let's not take any further than that. I'm just saying. It's not without its rules. But just because it has rules doesn't mean it's not a relationship, right? See, the difference between religion and relationship is not the presence versus the absence of rules. Religion makes everything about the rules. Religion makes everything serve the rules. It demands of people. It places the burden of proof up on them in order to accomplish, to achieve, and to satisfy those heavy demands. As Joshua and Orrin both mentioned a while ago, that we learned while we were in country that it's all about gaining points with God so that the rules can be satisfied. And maybe entrance into heaven can be gained. But you see, relationship holds rules in order to foster intimacy. To serve one another and to benefit all that are involved. It reminds people of what God has done for them. That's what relationship reminds you of. It reminds them of how much he loves them. How great his promises are to them. And how powerful he is to fulfill those very promises. You see, relationship is very different from religion. Because it fosters intimacy instead of creating a greater divide or separation. And what God does is establishes his relationship through the covenant that he forges. He says this, I, the only true God, am your God. I am with you. I go before you. I keep my promise to you. I lead you. I fight for you. I dwell among you. I provide for you. I bless you. He will say all of these things repeatedly to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And as he does, he's reminding us today that the same is true for us as it has always always been true because he forged the covenant by his own character not just by the performance of the people who were around him you see one great danger in relationship is this it's returning to a place where failure once affected the relationship to to returning to a place where relationship at that place seemed to deteriorate or to diminish and God knew this They came back to the place where 40 plus years prior, their fathers and their grandfathers and their uncles and their aunts and their mothers and grandmothers had said, we're not following God into there. And so often when you face the same temptation repeatedly in your life, it's more easy for you to choose comfort. Even though you know it's a more damnable and condemned choice, it's easier for you to choose comfort of entering back into your sinful practice than it is to face the fear of just trusting God and following Him somewhere you've never been before. And that's a danger in relationship. But that's where we find the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy. They had been at the threshold of the promised land before, and they rebelled, hence the 40 years in the desert. God could have simply said, I brought you back, I got you here. Get it right this time, right? We all hear that in our own mind, do we not? In our own heart. But instead, what did the Lord do? He took time to love them 
through this time. He comes again and he meets with them. He provides a leader to remind them of his promise. He provides his word that brings courage to do his will. And then he teaches and he unpacks his word which brings faith to trust him and to obey him. You see, God loved his people and he extended grace by giving to them and by instructing them in what? The law. The law. Ten words. Ten words. You see, the law is loving and gracious because, it is, uh, because in it, the Lord speaks to his people. There, there is no other God like this God. And without the law, two things uh, arise. First of all, without the law, there is no exclusive or true God. There is no one true God without the law. Therefore, without the law, there can be no God that is worthy of exclusive worship. That's how important the law is for us. When we read the law and we remember the gospel, the psalmist says this, it lights our way to follow God, it fills our heart with strength, and it fills our mind with wisdom and our life with joy. Hear me, friends, God promises and provides everything for us in relationship to teach us that He is faithful and able before He requires anything of us. God's put it all in. He's laid it all on the table before He asks anything from us. The third lesson that I need to move through very quickly is this. Missional living begins by obeying God's truth and the power of the gospel. Missional living begins by obeying God's truth and the power of the gospel. If you had one person in the whole Bible, one person, that you'd say, you know, if I were going to choose one person to be like in the whole Bible, who would it be? Okay, this is a good time for you to pull the old Sunday school answer out of the back pocket and say what? Jesus, right? <laughs> good answer. <clears throat> good answer. I was hoping you wouldn't need a big of a clue, but... Uh, do you know where Jesus went, Matthew 4, when he was in the desert? And Satan himself appeared to him and tempted him three times to deny the Father, to give up his glory. And Satan said, I'll give you all the glory of the earth, all the glory of the world. Do you know where Jesus went? Two of those, he went to Deuteronomy 6 and quoted God's law to Satan to defeat him. And one of those, the third one, he went to Deuteronomy 8. Let me tell you something, friends. If it was good enough for Jesus, I believe it's good enough for us. Right? Amen? Yeah. See, that's what he's teaching us. Missional living begins by obeying God's truth in the power of the gospel. Deuteronomy teaches us how to live missionally by demonstrating what it means to live the great commandment through the great commission. This is another place that we draw a false dichotomy in the world. We talk about the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Do you know where that comes from? Some of us would say, well, Matthew 22, where Jesus says it, he did do you know what Jesus is quoting there? Remember, Deuteronomy is quoted 437 times in the New Testament. If somebody asks you where did they get that from, it's always a solid guess and chance to say, mm, Deuteronomy, right? Especially since I'm preaching on Deuteronomy. If I ask you, do you know where he got that from, a good answer would be, mm, I'm going to say Deuteronomy. Okay, that's where he got it. The great commandment. 
But then we go over here to the Great Commission and we say this, uh, that, that we're to make this go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things. What would all these things be? The what? The law. You could have said Deuteronomy and you would have still been correct there. And lo, I'm with you always even unto the end of the age. What we do sometimes is go, man, I love to love God and I love to love other people. But please don't send me anywhere. And what we heard on the testimonies was this. It's not about just going somewhere. It's about who you are, where you are. First and foremost, there is no false dichotomy of separating the great commandment from the great commission. Because in the way that we love God completely, because we've been completely loved, we learn to love others as God has loved us. Friends, here's what I want to say. The gospel reminds and empowers us of where truth instructs us, where it illumines for us, and where it leads us in the way everlasting, the writers say, in the way everlasting. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. I began this morning's message with impact testimonies because I wanted you to see one illustration, not not because I want every one of you to go on an impact trip. I would love for every one of you to go on an impact trip, but that's not my end goal. My end goal is this, for your heart to be so inflamed with the love of God and what he's done for you, that you sense a burden, a burden for the nations. And that may begin with that one neighbor that's right across the street from you. But it's a burden that you know God has placed on your heart. But I want those kinds of testimonies to be true of our church. And so I want to call our church to a radical orientation this season for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about this series, in Shaped for Glory Through Mission, I don't want it just to be a study to increase our intellect, but in the increasing of our intellect, I want it to inflame our affections. I want it to command our attention as God transforms our lives. I'm going to offer you four foundational pillars over the next four weeks. And I'm going to say these are the foundation upon which God wants to build your life. And if you're going to live for God, these are the four foundational pillars that you will plant and deepen in your life so God can build it. And then the next five weeks after that, I'm going to offer you five resolutions to shape your Christian life by. Here's what I'm asking of us. First of all, I'm asking for God to do a powerful work among us, to lead us in a new season of ministry and a mission pause for just a moment as I've already done there and ask a question have you read any of the news in the past six months in our city don't even go outside of Ozark some of the darkest reports of the most heinous deaths right here in a place It's one of the most biblically minded cities in the world. That's what we were labeled. The greater Springfield region was labeled the sixth most biblically minded city in the nation. Aren't we proud of ourselves? And yet our city's falling apart. Not just our city, your neighbors, their lives are crumbling. And we look on from the outside and what do we see? The same thing they saw 
when they looked at, at Jesse's sons. Oh man, he's, he's ripped. He probably is going to be the next king. Well, he doesn't look that good, but man, he's smart. God may want to use him. And God said, no, 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 no. I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. What I'm praying is that God, God would use us to see beyond all of the masks that we've created in our city and all of the existences that we know ourselves are not real, but we propagate to other people so we don't have to show our pain of life and that we would by grace see our city with compassion and God would use us just to begin to massage the gospel into people's lives so that hope would come from hopelessness, that light would begin to penetrate into very dark areas that I'm convinced are increasing in our own city, that, that, that the good news would, would overcome the horrific news that people are living under each and every day in their own pain, in their own hurt. And you know who he wants to use to do that? You. You. Me, yes. People on the stage, yes people in the seats the people that are part of the body of Christ he wants us to be the people of God so we can do his will in the world so I'm going to close in this way I want to ask you to commit to participate in gathered worship every week I, I know schedules change but make a priority to be with us because God shows up when his people gather in powerful ways and this is an essential nutrient for the health of your spiritual life be here I want to ask you to connect in community group this is not just so we can validate a job position at our church or we can organize to accomplish something friends we're trying to help you we want to see the gospel become greater in your life. We want to see Jesus become bigger in you. I want to ask you to engage. To engage in serving and sharing the gospel. And see, see God bring to full fruition what he is working in you through the gospel. I'm asking God to do some radical stuff among our people this fall. And not just in the quietness of your own heart, but to bring it into the light so that the testimonies will resonate among our whole congregation. I'm asking God to get rid of some of you. To send you to the nations, not, not to just kick you out. You understand that, right? No, because my heart is that God might use you to radically lead you to the other end of the earth you in that way. For some of you, the radical change that God's going to do is a very faint footprint on the asphalt as you walk across the street to knock on your neighbor's door for the first time. Say, hey, you want to have dinner? What will it be? What will it be? God, break our hearts for the people of the world. like your heart breaks for people. Help us, God, to see our lives as you have created and redeemed them to be, expended fully for glory. And if there's one here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would understand today salvation 
changes everything about life. Save us today, God, and lead us forth. In your name we pray. Let's stand and sing together as we respond to the Lord.